Welcome to the latest episode of The Wharton Current. My name is Thomas Obermeyer, and I'll be sitting down with PJ Deshaines, Managing Director at Nomura Green Tech. Our topic today is the state of SPACs, including a primer on what they are, why they continue to grow in popularity, and what they mean for the climate tech sector. As a brief disclaimer from my side, I'll be interning with Nomura Green Tech in their New York office this summer. On a separate programming note, a new student organization at Penn is putting on a massive month-long climate pitch competition. Check out the Penn Climate Ventures Prize for a chance to pitch your climate tech solution to venture partners and a shot at $1,000 in non-dilutive funding. They've got a killer lineup of free speaker events, including keynotes from the president of Impossible Foods and the founding director of RPE. Come check it out at www.prize.penclimateventures.org. With that, hope you enjoy my conversation with PJ. Let's jump right in. PJ, thank you for joining the Wharton Current and being our guest today. Before we get started into today's topic on SPACs, you're a managing director with Nomura Green Tech. I've been there since 2009 when it was still Green Tech Capital Advisors. Could you give a brief introduction to what Green Tech is and um, how you came to join the company and also kind of the sustainability or what's now the climate tech space? Sure. So we started Green Tech in 2009, as you mentioned, to have a an advisory boutique uh, focused on mergers, acquisitions, and, and private placement transaction advisory, entirely focused on the space, which is, has gotten a, a lot bigger, but at, time, at the time was still fairly uh, young. Uh, but it was clear to a couple of us that when you were looking across um, different pools of uh, investment capital, from venture capital to um, infrastructure-oriented equity, to big incumbent industrial technology and energy companies, and then also to the, this this universe of disruptive and, and entrepreneurial startup companies that were were growing, the the, the themes across the sustainability and energy transition didn't really sit naturally in t- type of, inside of uh, traditional coverage groups at investment banks. Um, and there was an opportunity there. There's white space forming and demand for advisory of. Uh, a specialist boutique. So we started more green tech. We started green tech, excuse me, on that basis, uh, built it up for about a decade. Um, and you know, we're fortunate to see the growth that's come into these sectors across sustainable technology and infrastructure and um, overlapped well with a uh, uh, an interest that Nomura developed over the last couple of years of, of focusing more on themes related to ESG um, and combining their international investment bank and, and being presence in Asia with, with our ambition to f- further grow our platform. So on that basis, we merged into Nomura about a year ago, um, have rebranded as Nomura Green Tech, um, and have been doing a lot of great things since then. It's been a, a really great integration with the folks here at Nomura. Awesome. And I'm very excited to be joining this summer. So hopefully this goes well enough that you don't revoke my <laughs> offer after this. <laughs> but um, as you mentioned, the space has been growing rapidly, as has today's topic, which is SPACs. On, on the broader market, I mean, there were over 200 SPACs that went public last year, raised over $64 billion. Within that, there was a lot of activity in the kind of ESG sustainability space. But before, before we dive into that, could you give an overview of what a SPAC is? Sure. So uh, a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition corporation, and it's a, a creature that was developed a while ago. They've been around for decades, but um, where uh, a company is taken public as a shell company, 
And all that's in the company is money that's raised through an IPO and a team that whose job it is to go out and identify uh, a company to merge with. And so it formed as a way to, as an alternative to a traditional initial public offering, as a way to get a company listed on one of the um one of the U.S. exchanges. And historically, it's been something that has been for special situations. Um, some people have thought of them as being kind of shady or marginal and, and usually reserved for companies that have some complexity to them where they don't make good regular way IPO candidates. They may have some complexity of ownership that need to be solved. They may have some complexity around the, the management team or kind of the, the, the content of the company. And so the, they're, they're have historically been some smallish number of, of SPACs listed looking for acquisitions, um, maybe 30 or 40 at any given time. Um, and they have a couple of features to them. One of them is that they have a defined amount of time during which to identify an acquisition and complete that acquisition. And if they don't complete an acquisition within their allotted time period, it's usually 24 months, the SPAC has to give investors back their money with interest. Um, when they do that, they also forfeit the, the money that they've put up to pay for the, the underwriting and their own IPO and any expenses along the way. Um, and then they also are forfeiting their opportunity to take their carry in the transaction that they do. So it's a, it's a very challenging thing for a SPAC sponsor to do is to, to let the clock run out without having gotten an acquisition done. Um, they have some other bells and whistles, and we can go into those um, d- depending on your judgment of what's helpful for the, the listeners to understand. Um, but they a- also are, are a, a bit of um, a, 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 like growth equity in a, a public form. So the, the sponsors in the SPAC have a, a 20% interest in the SPAC's economics. They're kind of getting that for putting the deal together and playing some role in the management of the deal going forward. Um, that role can, has a very broad definition. In some cases, the SPACs are billing themselves as great operators where they can step in and um, start contributing as part of the management team in a company they'd bring public. In other cases, they're, they're very much presenting themselves a, as vehicles and conduits to the, the public markets. Um, in any case, the standard and it's, uh, it's, it's nearly unbroken, is that, that the SPAC sponsor gets as consideration for forming the SPAC, raising the money, putting the deal together, 20% of, of all the economics that the, the SPAC investors uh, and the, the SPAC vehicle gets in a deal. You know, the other kind of uh, component of these is there, there are warrants associated with SPACs in, in two types, one that are owned initially by the investors in the SPAC IPO, um, that's as a little bit of an extra kicker to be able to invest further into the, the merged company if the company trades well. So those warrants are usually struck a little bit um, above the, the, the value at which the, the SPAC goes public. And then the SPAC sponsors themselves um, buy warrants as part of the IPO. That what they're paying for those warrants is the money that funds the, the costs of the SPACs prior to uh, affecting a merger. It also gives uh, the SPAC sponsors uh, a bit of extra participation in the deal if it performs well. So SPACs can be extremely beneficial for the sponsor with uh, 20% interest and then warrants on top of that. Downside is if they don't close within 24 months, they lose the, the underwriting fees. Thinking about the target companies that eventually will go public by a reverse merger, what's 
in it for them? Why, why are they interested in going public by a SPAC than taking the traditional IPO route? Sure. So I, I think it helps to understand because that, that, that's changed a bit over the last year and a half. It, it helps to understand a bit historically in the transition from SPACs being this kind of uh, segment of the market, kind of you know, a little bit out of common interest segment of the market to being a really dominant theme in how companies are going public. You know, SPACs historically have looked at acquisitions and presented the acquisitions that they, that they do as being uh, a strong value and almost preferable to the value that the, the deals would otherwise trade in a regular way, M&A, or be sold to private equity. So as a further incentive to invest in a SPAC, the SPAC's trying to bring deals that um, you would be getting at a, a better valuation than you would be getting if you're investing in those companies as an LP through uh, a buyout fund. So you know, it's another reason why there are fewer SPACs. It's just harder to find those deals that can be done at, at a deep value. So if a company would otherwise be bought by a private equity firm at nine times EBITDA, the SPAC is saying, hey, we're really looking for companies that we can buy of a similar nature at, at seven times EBITDA and trying to present the companies to their investor with that kind of valuation positioning. Now, the, the market transformed about a year ago where the SPACs and the, their investors started getting more comfortable with looking at companies based on where they are expecting the companies to be in uh, a year, three years, five years. And we saw, we've seen companies go public on numbers looking forward as much as seven years into the future, um, which is, is a lot more familiar in kind of VC style math and valuation, which is to say, look, we've got a, a company that has a transformative technology or product um, it's going to dominate the market. And we can give you a lot of confidence that in five years, this is going to be a large company with a material amount of, of revenue and EBITDA. We might not have any EBITDA today. We might not even have any revenue. But in five years, we can point to a lot of evidence that we're going to be at this level of revenue and EBITDA. And we're going to go public uh, on the basis that you're buying today at a very deep, deep discount to where this company is going to be valued in five years. And that's how we're getting you there on the overall valuation, even though on a, a current year metric on, on revenue or, or EBITDA, the, um, the value today might seem very aggressive. So I, I think that that's a component of how the markets evolved and a component of why we've seen like on both sides, in terms of the number of SPACs and the number of companies contemplating uh, merging with a SPAC to go public, you can do things in, the, in a SPAC merger that would be hard to do. Companies would be seen as early if they were to otherwise try to go public through a regular way IPO. Additionally, there are a lot of companies, especially in our sector around energy transition or, or broadly ESG, that actually need a, a substantial amount of additional capital raised to execute on their business plan. And historically, that would have been kind of dosed out by subsequent rounds of private equity investment. And there's challenge and uncertainty of doing that versus raising a, a, a larger amount of capital a day and be able to put your heads down and execute on your business plan. So where we've seen um, kind of innovative companies around the um, electric vehicle sector or electric vehicle charging infrastructure or batteries go public, you know, these are companies that are early revenue companies, but they have the potential to be massive companies. And there's a bit of a halo effect of some of those to have pioneered before them through 
uh, regular IPOs like Tesla, where you know it's it's easy to say, "Wow, Tesla's a, a fantastic uh, success story today." But when they went public back in 2010, you know they were you know still very much trying to convince everyone that they would be a durable company with with product and profits. Um, you know because they've been so successful, there is a perception that you know others can follow a similar path, provided that they're fully funded today and given access to the, the equity capital markets. And Tesla has been a great example of this. They've been very smart and opportunistic when investors have put their share price up and uh, put a higher valuation on the company. They've been very skillful in going and, and tapping the equity capital markets for follow-ons or, or convertible bond issuances. Um, and I think a lot of other companies are going to follow that suit. That's, that's helpful. So maybe to, to summarize, the SPAC boom that we've seen since 2000, let's call it 19, the two main drivers of that and might be sector dependent are access to capital that some companies won't have in other spaces. And then secondly, um, investor appetite to look at certain companies that traditionally hadn't gone public or what truly is driving the, the increase in the number of SPACs that we've seen over the last few years? Well, there's an investor appetite too. It's, it, I think on one side, you have a supply. You have a supply of companies that are sufficiently advanced to be able to constructively use a couple hundred million dollars in, in financing to launch themselves into a stage of their business execution where they're generating a lot of revenues, generating a lot of profits. On the other side, there's a lot of demand. I mean, you think of historically where companies in sustainable infrastructure and technology have been funded, it's been largely through um, private equity type vehicles. So if you're the, the kind of the ultimate investor, you might be investing through a, a fund or an asset manager that's then an LP in one of those private equity vehicles. You, you go back two or three years and the, the market cap of any, everything that could be defined under clean tech, for example, it actually wasn't that big, maybe 50, $60 billion. There's been another $140 billion of market cap created in clean tech just in the last year through SPAC mergers. So if you think about the demand side, if you think about the demand for investment in listed equities in ESG, there's just been very, very little there. And part of the, the boom, if you will, in the last year and, and the portion of that boom that's been focused on our sectors has been so prominent is because there's been this persistent historic shortfall of investable market cap around energy transition and ESG. Now, on top of that, um, you know, I think about what happened this time last year as something of a green swan. So we, we had a global pandemic, but Concurrent with that, we also had a crash in oil prices, and we had a big kind of focus and shift of the attendant um, sovereign stimulus and bank policy that got focused on, you know, Biden's build it back better or wanting to build um, infrastructure or create incentives and stimulus that motivated investment around decarbonization. So the, the combination of all of those things made it more clear and not necessarily for because of a dollar stimulus, but more because of the, the policy direction, um, both publicly and, and in big private companies that we're going to get really serious about decarbonization, whether that's through adherence to the Paris Agreement or net zero targets. And that brought forward this huge addressable market for companies that are making low emission vehicles or companies that are generating 
low carbon power, storing low carbon power to enable the increased penetration of intermittent renewables. So you know the, the market changed too, and it was a really big phase change. Um, I think that was a big support of why you saw both an increasing demand and then the supply of companies that said, oh my gosh, my market opportunity is now so much bigger if I'm really going to go after this. And you know, it's a competitive market. There's an arms race to a degree, whether you buy a Tesla or a Lucid or a Fisker or a Lordstown or a Ford or a GM, you, you've got you've to have money to invest to stand up that technology, stand up that manufacturing capability, you know, start standing up the, the infrastructure to charge electric vehicles. Um, so I think that's all been part of the environment in the last year that's caused this boom. So you, you mentioned Lordstown, and I think a common criticism for SPACs is that investors kind of go into buying a SPAC blindly. There's, there's little diligence available to them. Um, they're buying a shell company. Do you think that if a Lordstown fails, a Nikola doesn't ever bring anything to market, that that will put an end to SPACs or even energy transition investing as it is, and we have a repeat of the clean tech bubble, or do you think there's, there's going to be outliers in any kind of investing and um, they're, they're, they're not representative of the entire space? Um, I don't think they're representative of the entire space. Although when, um, when markets accelerate, we have the velocity of capital that we do now. I think you're always going to have some cases where, you know, the, the investment isn't diligenced as uh, thoroughly as it should be. And then the capital is not used as wisely as it should be. I mean, we, you pick a bubble, <laughs> right? It doesn't have to be just clean tech. Um, I mean, it could be the dot-com bubble. It could be the, you know, the, the credit bubble. Um, well, I, I think we'll experience some of that. Um, and I, I think we'll ride through some of that chop over the next year or so. And I think it'll be a really interesting um, tension between, you know, the experience that some of these companies have as they start to live the life of being uh, public companies and quarterly reporters um, and start to really be followed by serious investors and, and equity research analysts and the continued demand both for investment in our sectors and then also the, the um, you know, supply, if you will, of, of SPAC vehicles in the market. I mean, currently there's on the order of 600 SPACs that are either listed or on file. You know, all those more or less have something around a two year uh, shelf life on them. So we're gonna be living with uh, a, big, a big volume of SPAC vehicles for a while. And at least in the first three months of the year, there've been about twice to three times as many SPACs that have uh, listed in a given week than um, SPAC merger transactions have been announced. Yeah, yeah. Um... I think Shell Khan had a tweet last month saying that of the 41 announced SPAC mergers in climate tech, 23 had revenue under 10 million last year and 15 were pre-revenue. Um, so that is unlikely to change over the first few quarters. So um, we'll see how, how investors treat those companies as they move along and have access to the capital they raised. Um, going back to green tech and your role in all of this what what is the role of an investment bank in in the spec both from from the sponsor's perspective and then from the co uh, company that's eventually taking public yeah lots <laughs> which is I, I think a, a good thing and a bad thing 
um, the, the more you have an invest, investment banks involved, the more you have investment banking fees piling up and the more the investment banks tend to get behind a, a, a certain product or uh, cycle in the market. So um, in, in general, investment banks are very involved. So from the, on the SPAC side, um, all SPACs, ha- at least so far, have, um, have underwriters. So they're, they're going public through an IPO the way a lot of co- companies go public through an underwritten IPO. Um, and so the, the, the job of those underwriters is to get the, the SPAC sponsor organized, help draft the S1, um, do a number of the things uh, required to get them ready to, to sit in front of investors and then conduct the, the, the roadshow and the marketing um, and, and ultimately um, put the book together to complete the IPO. So it's invest, there's investor access there um, and, and then structuring and creating the, the transactions and the SPACs go public. Um, the convention is that about 45% of the fees to the underwriters are paid at the time of the IPO, as, as, as opposed to 100% in the case of a, a regular IPO. Um, and the balance is paid as a back-end fee, um, only paid if and when the SPAC completes a merger with a target. And part of that is to help the, the SPACs minimize the cost, because they're really not doing as much um, just going public as a blank check company than, than a regular company would. Um, and part of it is also to incentivize the, the banks to stay involved and help bring the SPAC sponsor ideas for acquisition targets. So that that then creates a relationship with a, an investment bank that is handed from the um, equity capital markets group over to, to probably several groups with inside of the bank. A lot of banks have a, a SPAC coverage group now, um, but also coordinating with, with coverage teams about where there might be ideas for targets to bring to SPAC sponsors that have been clients of the bank. Um, then as a SPAC finds a deal, often they're, they're bringing in the investment bank, you know, perhaps to work as a buy side advisor. Um, I don't know that that happens on, on every case, but often if the SPAC is, is merging with a target where the, the, either the target or the industry in general, they're not as familiar with that, they will bring on a buy side advisor to help them with deal structuring, diligence. And then the, the, the SPAC is also working with its investment banks to arrange a committed pipe. And we'll come back to that. Um, but there's this, this second stage of the capital raise through a SPAC, which is a private investment into a public equity or pipe um, that is actually additional capital markets money that goes into the SPAC in support of a transaction that the SPAC has already negotiated and priced, but hasn't yet signed in a business combination agreement. So then on the target side, it looks a lot like sell-side M&A advisory, where a lot of targets... Um, you know, faced with interest from SPACs or wanting to proactively go out and talk to SPACs will hire an advisor to help prepare them for that conversation, to help them get ready for the diligence and the presentations with their management team. And that's increasingly valuable as we have this huge proliferation of number of SPACs and types of sponsors of who do I talk to? You can't talk to all of them. You don't want to talk to all of them. Um, and how can I make sure that I get the, the, the very high quality ones to pay attention to me? That's a, a really important role of the investment bank and often the role that we're playing as Nomura Green Tech in these transactions. So I mentioned we merged into Nomura. We do have the benefit of working broadly with um, equity capital markets and, and SPAC coverage here. But a lot of what we're doing in terms of advisory related to SPAC merger transactions is advising the, the target companies from the very beginning of a process of, should I do this? How should I do this? What should I think about? Who should I talk to? And then and working with them through the whole transaction process, the negotiation with the SPACs, 
the, the, the term sheet, the pipe raising process and, and ultimately getting the deal signed. After a deal signed with a SPAC, um, there, there's still a lot of work to do. There's some filing that needs to get done with the SEC. Um, there's a lot of the uh, investor interaction that the, the bank can also support with kind of the, the non-deal roadshows that get the, the, the management team, which is now going to be the management team of the of merged entity in front of the investors that may be buying after the, the deal transaction closes, um, or might be some of the investors in the SPAC that are going to be the long-term investors in the company as it goes public. So there's quite a bit there. And then another element of it from, for an investment bank is an equity research um, of starting to get research analysts engaged that are going to follow the company and publish on the company as it's public. That's a very helpful overview. Um, you, you briefly touched on this when you mentioned Tesla earlier, but are there any implications, and let's bring it back to energy transition space, for corporates or even private equity firms that may have looked at some of these companies that are going public as potential um, acquisition targets for them? Or are those two separate areas and they're kind of untouched from, from the SPAC boom? Um, well, there's certainly uh, another side of this, which is you know, SPACs are going to put pressure on other transition, traditional forms of, of acquisition, which is either acquisition by financial sponsors or acquisitions by corporates. So you know, as corporates are thinking about what targets might be available, one, and then two, the valuation of the expectation of those targets, you know, there's a huge amount of pressure being placed on valuations because of the, the valuation levels at which SPACs are, are, are willing to transact. Now, uh, uh, going public is not an exit. It's, a, it's very much a financing in a lot of ways. So just because you go public at a certain valuation doesn't mean that all your investors are, are exiting and, um, and getting their cash on cash return at that valuation level. Um, so I think there is still a pretty big role in regular M&A where companies, you know, either don't want to be public and or are really focused on getting a, a more complete exit in a transaction. Got it. And then finally, looking at the future, 12 months out, maybe even 24 months out, what do you think the SPAC landscape will look like? Are they an investment vehicle that's here to stay or are they short-lived? Anybody's guess, Thomas. Um, here's a here's a view. Um, they're here to stay, and I think this is a you know is maybe not a complete permanent pendulum swing, but it is a, a, a weighting back to the amount of of where money comes from into growth companies, and or or companies that might be kind of mid growth towards maturity, but. Um, you have an alternative to being acquired by a, a private equity firm. Um, and that is, I think we're going to go from um, having a, a large amount of money committed to discretionary GP funds to having more money and more allocation into SPACs and into these um, equity market vehicles. And I think the world is going to evolve to expect that. So if you're a, a big pension fund, you're just thinking about having a little bit less in, in, in private equity and a little bit more in these kinds of vehicles, whether it's directly or through some other way of allocating into these vehicles. Um, and I, I think there's also going to be some elements of, of pricing around SPACs and terms around SPACs that are going to compress to accommodate that. That is, the you know, private equity universe for a long time has been able to hold the, the, the 2 and 20 
style of fees. Um, I think LPs for a long time have had a lot of issues with paying two and 20 level fees for any given performer. They don't have an issue for the, the top quartile or so, but you're, they don't, don't always have access to the top quartile. Whereas I think the, the fee structures or the, the, the cost structures around SPACs are going to compress. I think at some point, um, SPAC sponsors will break the line on the 20% carry. I think that will get compressed. That, that component is already getting either forfeited to a degree or um, shifted into an earnout on a lot of the actual deals um, because it's a really challenging piece of dilution for the target companies. Um, the warrant coverage on SPACs is definitely coming down. I'd say a year ago, a third to a half warrant was the standard. I think there were only of 24 SPAC IPOs in the last week. I think only two had more than a third of, a, of warrant coverage. So I think this, this is going to be one where the institutional investors of the world are just starting to expect to allocate more towards, towards SPACs and ultimately to equities of certain classes as a result of, of, of this tool being prevalent. A, a point of evidence is we're working across from a, a sponsor group that has done four buyout private equity funds to date, um, and they're just on the end of their fourth. Um, they just listed their third SPAC. They've got two more on file. And the, the, the managing partner of that fund said they're not going to raise another private equity fund. They're going entirely over to a SPAC strategy. Now, that's pretty kind of leading edge. Um, but if you look across the, the investment universe for some of the bigger investors in private equity, pretty much all of them have a SPAC strategy at this point, whether it's TPG or Apollo or KKR. And I think those, those, those pieces of the, the platforms are just going to proliferate. And I think we'll see some more creativity around other aspects. We talked a little bit, or I mentioned committed pipes being the standard that are how SPAC mergers are, have been done for about the last year. Um, that's really an inefficient way to get deals done. <laughs> you kind of have to do two deals to get one deal done. You've got to get the SPAC merger done, and then you've got to go and place a, a pipe. As it becomes more resolution around who the leading SPAC sponsors are, and some of these will be household names, like some of the, the ones that I just mentioned. Those SPAC sponsors are going to do more with forward purchase commitments and things like that so that they can come to deals and really give some relief in part or in whole around the need to go out and, and market a pipe um, after a, a SPAC gets under a term sheet with a target. Got it. PJ, thank you so much for joining us. This was a very helpful overview of the, the state of SPACs today um, and hope to have you on the pod again soon. Yeah, thanks so much, Thomas. This was fun and great talking to you. I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with PJ. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of The Wharton Current and let us know if there are any topics you would like to learn more about on the show. Thanks for listening.